Welcome to USAID's Kitchen Sink, a food loss and waste podcast. I'm your producer, Nika Larian. 30 to 40% of the food that is produced is either lost or wasted, contributing to a global food crisis with over 800 million going to bed hungry. Listen on as USAID experts speak with researchers and development professionals to explore solutions to this critical issue that demands a kitchen sink approach. When it comes to climate, food security, and food system sustainability, we have no time to waste. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of USAID Kitchen Sink, a food loss and waste podcast. The USAID Research Community of Practice Working Group on Food Loss and Waste aims to share research and knowledge with USAID staff and implementing partners interested in the implications of and approaches of addressing food loss and waste. My name is Anes Mawire, and I am a project development specialist with the Regional Economic Growth Office and the Fifth Future Coordinator for USAID Southern Africa. Today, I'm joined with Mandangomo, the Chief Growth Officer at the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture, Central Hub, based in Nairobi, Kenya. We will be discussing about how value addition at source can be a way to reduce and ultimately eradicate food loss and waste. Welcome, Manda. Kindly introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, uh, Anesu. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be, to be chatting to you at this time. Uh, like you've already said, uh, my name is uh, Mandla Ngomo, uh, Chief Growth Officer for one of the initiatives of the CGIR uh, called Excellence in Agronomy. Uh, I've spent uh, the last 25 years of my life working with um, uh, producers or small-scale farmers, and uh, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you because I think the point uh, around uh, you know food loss is an important point, especially here on the African continent and generally in the global south. And it's a conversation that we must be having more often and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Manda. Yes, indeed, we need to have these conversations as we try and address the challenge of food crisis that we are facing currently. I will just delve into our first question right now. What is your understanding of value addition at source and how does this relate to food loss and waste? Uh, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Anesu. I, I think it's, a, it's important for us to, to you know, attack this question from this perspective that, um, um, you know, if you look at it from a food system perspective, um, all food typically originates from some production uh, space. Uh, and uh, in the space where I operate, it's mainly food that is produced by farmers, and that could be crops, but it could also be be, be livestock and uh, you know aquatic foods, and 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 this uh, you know food is often produced quite often far from where it is it is consumed, so it has to undergo quite a lot of uh, transformation. Uh, from where it is just a primary product to where it is a, a product that a consumer like you and my, me can actually pick up either at a store or at a roadside market and take home and um, and prepare for consumption. So, so you know, value addition at source then becomes one of those critical uh, activities that needs to happen 
to make sure that the integrity uh, of, uh, of the food and the food products arrive at the consumer in a wholesome manner that uh, the consumer is able to, to consume uh, without uh, putting themselves under any risk and that the quality, both from a you know, phytosanitary perspective and also from an aquanoleptic uh, perspective is still in good nick. So value addition at source is there for those steps or activities that producers need to take to make sure that they are increasing the chances uh, of the food that they produce actually arriving um, at, the, at the end consumer uh, in, a, in, a, in a state that is uh, uh, still consumable uh, and, and is wholesome for, for consumption. Thank you. Thanks so much, Manja, for clearly highlighting that and, and the links between food loss and waste as well as value addition at source. You mentioned that you have been in, in this space for quite some time. So my next question is going to be, are you able to give us um, some examples that we can highlight here on how food loss and waste has been addressed through value addition at source? No, absolutely. So one of the things, uh, Anesu, that you might not know about um, uh, what I've done with my life is that I spent uh, quite a few years uh, operating a fairly large-scale um, vegetable production uh, uh, business. Uh, we were the primary producers, so we produced quite a, a number of uh, vegetables, uh, vegetable crops, um, you know, onions, uh, carrots, cabbages, uh, sweet potatoes, etc. And, um, and our clients were, were the big supermarkets uh, that you find in places like South Africa, so pick and pay, Woolworths, Spa, etc., uh, and, and our job was to make sure that uh, when we deliver our produce to them, uh, all they need to do is to load it on the shelf, on the supermarket shelf. So the level of value addition at source that we had to do, first of all, we had to select very carefully, uh, you know, what we harvest. So most people, you know, will not realize this, but if you're in the fresh produce space, selecting what gets harvested is the first step of value addition because we are already ensuring that uh, the chances of loss after you deliver uh, the product, the chances of food loss as a result of maybe uh, loss of cold chain or, uh, or degradation and so forth is reduced. So we had to select the produce very well. And, and, and once we selected it, we had to put it through, you know, uh, a packhouse facility that graded the product because not all food products uh, are equal. Uh, there are some that are higher grades. There are some that are lower grade. And that, that work of actually disaggregating uh, the, the commodity actually helps you as a producer because it means that for your high-value product or for your uh, first-grade product, you'll earn more money than a product that maybe uh, is not as great as, as you know, your first-grade stuff. So it was important for us to, to then put it through, you know, this grading process. And I think grading is, uh, is one of those very critical activities uh, that we need to do uh, when it comes to value addition as source. Because in our business, we were then able, you know, to immediately transform our lower grade product into processed product on the farm. 
So product that we couldn't sell to the supermarkets as, uh, you know, retail packs, we could sell to the food service industry, like the canteens uh, that are the industrial kitchens and so forth that wanted pre-processed product that was already cut, diced and sliced. So we were able to take some of our lower grade in terms of aesthetics product, cut it up, chop it up and make it available to another client who, interestingly, Anesu, would actually pay us more for what would have been a, a lower grade retail product. But because we are able to process it uh, at source, we could find a different market for it. So that's a, a classical example that uh, I think a lot of producers uh, would immediately uh, identify with. But I do know that uh, when you are you know, growing crops like uh, some of the cereals, like uh, corn or maize, uh, uh, rice, um, you know, crops like sweet potatoes and so forth, the, the kind of processes that you might need to do at farm will be totally different. But at the end of the day, what we are saying is that there is a lot of options uh, around how we handle, manipulate our, our produce straight off the field to make it ready for different markets through this value, value addition uh, exercise. If we don't do that, uh, we pay the price in terms of the losses that then we incur. Thanks so much, Manja. Um, I love the fact that value addition at source provides the, the producers with many options, different markets that they could access to. So how do we then integrate managing food loss and waste into economic development? and women and youth economic empowerment programs, seeing that most of the programs have identified that the primary population within the production sources are women and youth. Well, I think, I think your question has, uh, has two elements to it. Uh, one of them is what would be the ideal developmental interventions um, that need to be set up you know, along uh, these, these, these value chains but I think your second part of the question is really asking how do we make sure that uh, women and youth uh, benefit from some of these interventions? I think, Anesu, it starts with um, us as uh, the professionals in this space really having a, a good understanding uh, of the sectors that we are supporting ourselves. Uh, my own experience and in my other life, you would know this, I've, um, I've run fairly large um, agricultural development projects uh, with large numbers of staff who are working in the field and engaging with, um, uh, with farmers and farmer groups. I will admit that one of the mistakes we make is that we, it's easier for us to recruit generalists uh, and not specialists because often specialists become expensive. But I can tell you now that one of the things we can do as development organizations is to make sure that we are informing the generalist uh, uh, interventions through our, our colleagues who are working in, this, in these spaces. We are informing that by the input from the specialists. So if we are as a USAID, for example, are supporting maize farmers, I think it is important for us to have a maize expert who understands maize as a commodity, who understands the growing of maize, who also understands the markets uh, that maize goes into. To give you an example, 
uh, if you take maize, which is a common product in, uh, in Southern Africa, most people think that the only thing you can do with maize is to mill it and turn it into, uh, in, in East Africa, we call it Ugali. In Southern Africa, it's either Nshima or Sadza or Ischwala. Like, that's the only thing you can do with maize. But if you really step back, you realize that there is a lot of uh, end products for maize, such as you can extract oil from maize, you can produce cornflakes from maize, uh, you can produce stock feed from maize, and understanding the market side then makes sure that when we are informing farmers, uh, things like uh, you know making sure your maize is dry enough to be at 14% moisture before you market it, all those are important because there are certain end users that cannot you know accept maize, which has a moisture content greater than 14%. It's not going to travel well. It's not going to store well. And therefore, if, if uh, producers or processors are buying maize that does not have its moisture content determined, they're going to offer a low price because they know they are taking a risk that they might not even use 50% of the maize. So it's important that this intricate knowledge yeah, by specialists across the supply chain is made available so that our, our colleagues who are working directly with farmers, advising farmers, supporting aggregators, etc., are able to impart correct information about this product called maize. But you are absolutely right. Uh, if you look at a lot of these supply chains or value chains, it's very clear that typically, and I'm being general here, they do tend to exclude women and youth participation. And why is that? I think a lot of the reasons why that happens is because there's often a, 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 an issue of power play around uh, the main uh, end markets that are consuming this maize and who they typically will engage with. But if we opened up better knowledge, better information about the multiple uh, end points that maize can go to, I think we can then bring in women and youth to participate in those markets. Let the men sell the bulk maize to uh, uh, the big aggregators and, uh, and, uh, and shima processors. But what about uh, popcorn? What about maputi? What about uh, uh, maize for stock feed, which is often uh, actually yellow maize and not the normal white maize? What about maize that gets used uh, for, um, for things like conflicts? Those are alternatives which require a certain level of uh, on-farm value addition and processing that I think will bring women and youth into the game and actually make these quite, um, uh, quite inclusive supply chains. Thanks so much, Mandla. With all these options available, how important is that to minimize costs and increase access to finance that is crucial for food loss and waste innovation? I think, uh, Anesu, you, you've actually raised an important uh, uh, question. I, I think we, we will be kidding ourselves if uh, we held the view that for us to reduce um, uh, food loss and waste, uh, we can do it in a cost-neutral manner. Uh, it's not going to be cost-neutral. It's going to require investment. I think we've already indicated the level of investment <clears throat> 
that is required uh, at, uh, at a knowledge level, uh, making sure that there's proper knowledge. But what I didn't mention is that uh, there, there's serious investment that is required uh, at, farm, at farm level to make sure that farmers have got these options. So I work now in, uh, in East Africa, uh, which has uh, typically two rainy seasons. It's a bimodal kind of uh, uh, environment. So in places like Uganda, it's virtually impossible for you to have enough low humidity days to dry your maize after you've harvested it. So what if, yeah, we're encouraging youth, we're encouraging women to set up drying facilities in, in their villages, link them to alternative markets for maize. That requires investment, but it requires targeted investment. Because if we, if we take also a, um, a, a non-nuanced view on, on investment requirements, we're going to be offering um, women and youth options that they cannot exercise. So we need blended finance, finance that includes a high risk-taking component in the form of grants, uh, which is ring-fenced maybe by, by um, uh, you know, uh, other instruments, risk mitigation instruments like uh, guarantees, and low-interest loans with the right kind of tenure for repayment, which makes it possible yeah, for, for people across this value chain to be able to acquire the equipment, the infrastructure uh, that is required for them to contribute to reducing food loss and turn it into a profitable business. If we just say to them, okay, uh, here's a, a typical bank facility, go and uh, try your luck. Well, chances are the people that we are targeting, the people that we want to crowd into the sector would never qualify for traditional finance products. So we need to have a, a nuanced view around how we are packaging finance options uh, for, for women and youth to participate uh, in this reduction of, uh, of food loss and waste. And what you find, Anes, is that even as you move up the chain where the, the waste has happened, uh, even there, when you are, whether you are turning waste into, into other alternative products, there is a need for you to have a level of investment. And quite often, uh, the, the ecosystem that supports uh, these uh, uh, enterprises or, or folk simply does not have the products that are required and are fit for purpose. Thank you so much, Mandra. Uh, I would really want to thank you for unpacking this in such a succinct manner as we try to address the food loss and waste and also look at how we can do a wholesome market integration with um, with with our producers in looking at the value chain from farm to market, I would really appreciate you for taking time to add to to discuss this with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to USAID's Kitchen Sink. This podcast was produced by Nika Larian and is organized by the USAID Food Loss and Waste Community of Practice co-chairs Ahmed Kablan and Anne Vaughn. Additional thanks goes to Feed the Future, the U.S. government's global food security initiative, and the USAID Center for Nutrition.